Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Now, we have been in the book of Matthew, moving our way through, just a verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew. We've stopped uh, at Matthew chapter 23, verse 36 is where we left off. So we're going to pick up today in verse 37, just a couple more verses in Matthew chapter 23. But I will remind you that the last few studies over the last month or so that we've been looking at, we've been seeing we are in the last week of Jesus's life. As a matter of fact, we are right around the last day or so before Jesus is going to be arrested and crucified. And in that last week of his life, it happens to be the Passover week. And so all the Jews uh, have made, or many of the Jews have made their way down to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples included. And they arrived there about a week or so before these events would take place. And Jesus would go into that temple we mentioned. And again, the temple's not just a building, it's a compound. And he would go up onto that compound and he would begin to talk with people, minister to people. And in that, there's been a whole series of conflicts that have developed where Jesus has sort of confronted the hypocrisy of the religious leaders that are congregated there at the temple. But in addition to that, they've kind of confronted him to kind of put him to the test. Hopefully he'll fail those tests and then they can prove, see, he's not the Messiah and so on. And the tension level between Jesus, his disciples to a lesser degree, and all of the religious leaders and those that are around him there in Jerusalem has never been at a higher point. And again, it's going to culminate with their asking for his arrest and ultimately his crucifixion at the hands of the Roman leaders. And that, again, is only going to be a few days from here. And so clearly now where we are in the book of Matthew, the lines have been drawn. And there's this block over here that is for Jesus, with Jesus, and there's this block over here that is against him. And that group is primarily the religious leaders. They have made up their mind that Jesus is not the long-awaited Messiah. You're not him. And so we're not going to kind of look into this matter anymore. We have decided. And they made up their mind to do so. Now, if you were Jesus, and you are the Messiah and they've made up their mind that you're not, and they're telling everybody else that you're not, and they're breathing out these threats that anyone who follows him is out of the synagogue or you know, out of the Jewish faith or whatever, how would you respond to that? Let me just tell you how Greg would respond to that. Greg would be a little upset with that. I feel like Jimmy. You know, Greg would be a little, my wife understands the joke. It's an inside joke. Anyhow, uh, I'd be upset with that. I'd be angry by that. I'd want to get even with people. I'd want to give them a piece of my mind. And yet none of that is how the Lord responds. Aren't you glad the Lord is different from me? It, oh my. <laughs> of all people, my wife was the loudest amen on that. All right. Thank you, dear. I will work harder. Verse 37 is where we now jump in. Notice what Jesus says. So here is his response. He says here, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so again, the tension's real high. They've made up their mind. And Jesus' response as he's really, he's going to leave Jerusalem here. He's going to leave the Temple Mount area here. And the temple was right on the edge of the city of Jerusalem. He's going to go outside of Jerusalem. And as he goes or as he stands there and he looks back and takes one last look, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He repeats the name of the city 
that served as the capital of the people. It served as the political capital of the Jewish people. It served as really the social capital of the Jewish people, and it was certainly the religious capital of the Jewish people. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So reminiscent to me of a verse I memorized years ago where David mourns the passing of his son. Now, we all know David had the son Solomon who would go on to be a king, but David had a number of other sons. One of those sons was a fellow by the name of Absalom. And in 2 Samuel chapter 18, 13, his son had just died, and David is mourning the death of his son, and he says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son. Now, certainly anyone that loses anyone or anyone that loses a child is going to mourn the loss of that child. But the instance involving Absalom, Absalom wasn't sick and died. He wasn't in some tragic accident and died. Absalom died in the midst of an attempted coup of his father, the king. He tried to overthrow his father, the king, and become king himself. And he died in the midst of that battle, if you will. And yet notice David mourns this. You would almost expect David to be like, you got what you expected, son, or what should have come coming to you. Somebody tries to rise up against me, they're going to die. No, But he doesn't. He mourns. And as I am thinking of Jesus here saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's really the same type of thing that David was going through. As David mourns the loss of his rebellious son, Jesus here mourns the loss of the rebellious religious leaders the rebellious nation of Israel that refuses to accept him as the Messiah. And the point that I I make here is that's the heart of the Lord. So we might look at these words here, and they're going to be very heavy words that Jesus shares, both with them and with us. And we might look at this and think that it's coming from a heart where Jesus is saying, like, you're going to get yours, and I can't wait till it happens. But that's not at all the heart of the Lord. The heart of the Lord here is, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, oh, Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, how often I have desired to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks, but you wouldn't come. And he knows that the consequences are going to come for their actions, and he mourns over that. His desire was nothing but good for them. His desire was to take them under his care and protect them, but they refused that. And so, as it says, he mourns them doing so. Now, the verse goes on to say that he would pick up and he would leave that, that particular city there. I'm reminded in the book of Ezekiel, again, I'm reminded, I love the Old Testament. I hope you do as well. And I'm reminded in the Old Testament of the Jewish temple. You recall that it was Solomon that built the temple roughly around 950 B.C. Uh, it was somewhere around 600 B.C. that the enemy nations began to come, the Babylonians in particular, began to come and attack the nation of Jerusalem. And there was all bits of periods of sin in the history of the nation of Israel, and they would get involved in the idolatry of the neighboring nations, and they even brought those things into the holy places of God, even to the temple. And in the book of Ezekiel, we we read a very fascinating, in my opinion, uh, situation of where the Spirit departs the temple. And we're going to talk about that because of the correlation it is with Jesus now departing the temple. But the prophet Ezekiel speaks in such a way of the heart of God. And he says this in Ezekiel 33. This is a little bit after the event I just described. But he says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, as I live, excuse me, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has no pleasure in judgment on the wicked. It will come, the scripture says, 
And if God wouldn't judge the wicked, then the holiness of God is negated. And so judgment will come. But that's not his heart. He's not delight. He doesn't delight in it. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I like the way the apostle Peter describes the Lord's heart. This is in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, this is, I read out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. This, I actually misread it. It was the easy to read version. I never heard of it before. It's the ERV. I read the ESV. And anyhow, I like the way it, say it said it, so I want to give it to you. It, this is the ERV. It says, the Lord is not being slow in doing what he promised, the way pe- some people understand slowness. But God is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. That's a phrase I, I like there. It's so simple. He wants everyone to change their ways and to stop sinning. So again, that's the heart of Jesus as he is about to depart the temple. It'll be the last time he is at the temple in his earthly life there. And as he's about to to depart from it, his heart is broken. He is sad. He's sad in by the rejection of him and the consequences he knows that will come. And so That's uh, the end of chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have gathered to bring you here. He says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Also notice there in verse uh, 38, he says, see your houses left desolate to you. Particularly the temple, the house of God would be left desolate. Jesus is prophesying of an event which would take place within the generation of many of these people that he is speaking to within 40 years. The Romans would destroy the temple. We'll look at it again a little bit in chapter 24. But stone by stone would be removed and the temple would lie in ruins. It would be desolate. It hasn't been, uh, it hasn't been a structure now for almost 2,000 years. But the Bible does speak of it being rebuilt. And so it's interesting that we see plans to rebuild the temple taking place and efforts toward that. We'll talk about it. Let's go into chapter 24. Verse 1 says, Jesus left the temple and he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, again, I've been pointing out how Jesus makes his way each day to the temple. Now he is, as I said, he's going to depart that temple. And again, it was the last time he was there. It says in verse 24, Jesus left the temple. A reference a few moments ago where the Holy Spirit left the temple. In the book of Ezekiel, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, Ezekiel is sort of one of those books, it's a little bit longer, and if you're not really taking time with it, you're just kind of perusing through it, it kind of the words a little gloss over and you're like I don't even know what I just read or whatever and you got to really dig into it to start reading through the book of Ezekiel and in Ezekiel chapter 9 starting around Ezekiel chapter 9 we begin to read of the spirit making his way and departing from the holy of holies it's fast it's, it's almost like what that couldn't have happened but it, the scripture says that it did and again they had gotten into, involved in so much sin And that sin had spiraled further and further and further. Ezekiel is given a vision of it where he comes to this, uh, like a hedge of sorts, and he kind of digs through it, and he he gets like a bird's eye view of it or a side angle view of it. And it's essentially pornographic what he views, uh, it seems to be described as. That's the worship that is going on of these other false gods. And so that's obviously not of the Lord. And so we read in Ezekiel chapter 8, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing, the children of Israel? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, 
to drive me far from that sanctuary, great abominations to drive me far from that sanctuary, it says in in verse 6 there. And then again, as we begin reading, Ezekiel chapter 9 speaks of the Spirit being driven first from this place, kind of to that place, kind of to the pinnacle of the temple, then to the Mount of Olives, and then out of Jerusalem altogether. You can go and read those chapters, but this is how it culminates. Ezekiel eleven twenty three: the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the Mount of Olives, that's the mountain that is on the east side of the city. The glory of the Lord that's the Holy Spirit, had been striving with this rebellious people, urging this rebellious people to repent of their deeds and to turn back to him. And just as we see here now, that's exactly what Jesus had been doing with the religious leaders of Israel. He had been striving with them, trying to get them to come to their senses that their Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah had come, and yet they rejected the long away Messiah, Messiah. And just as the Holy Spirit departed the temple in the book of Ezekiel, so too here, Jesus will depart the temple. Now, before he does that, so he's picking up, come on, guys, let's go, we're getting out of here. Before he does that, one of the disciples says that, he points out the beauty of the building. Look at chapter 24, 1. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Mark in particular, the Gospel of Mark, specifically says that they draw attention to the wonderful stones and the building that was there. Mark 13, look teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. This disciple takes notice of just how much of a wonder this building was, how ornately designed the building was, how large the stones were, how, mig- how magnificent this structure was in comparison to basically anything else, at least in these people's worlds. And there may have been other structures around the world which were significant, but you know, people aren't getting on a plane and flying all over the place. As far as in their worlds, this was the most magnificent structure that they had ever seen. Somebody had said, you have never seen a building unless you've seen, in that day, unless you've seen the temple in Jerusalem. That's how ornate it was. Now, this particular temple is referred to as the second temple. Solomon's temple being the first one. Solomon's temple was destroyed, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, and there was efforts to kind of rebuild it. But even the older folks that had seen it in its glory looked at it and was like, it's not the same. It's not the same. Well, Herod, who was not not a believer in God, but he was a believer in let's make a name for ourselves, And so he decided he was going to take this structure that pretty much sat by itself on top of a mountain and he was going to make it this complex that could be compared to nothing else. And so Herod poured a lot of time and effort and money into this structure here. Historically, we know that the building was 120 feet high compared with the average structure that a person lived in or worked in, which was six or seven feet high. This building is 120 feet high rising off of a mountain. And so, obviously, it was something uh, to behold. Herod's temple was overlaid with gold. And we know the scripture talked about the inside being overlaid with gold. He overlaid the outside of the structure with gold as well. The effect was that when the sun caught the temple, that it radiated light. They say that as people would kind of be making their way to Jerusalem from the past that would travel into the city, there would be this bright shining light coming off of uh, Mount Moriah there. And that was the temple in the way that the gold reflected it. Historian Josephus tells us that Herod employed over 10,000 skilled laborers to build this complex. 
and that that building took place over a period of 80 years, finished up by those that would replace him, his, uh, those that would replace him. And what's the term? Okay, very good, Jake. SAT word, excellent. Very good. So this was an architectural masterpiece of its day. They have unearthed stones from the temple period that are equal in size to modern-day school buses. Individual stones they have unearthed from that period. So it was a feat in that day. Some stones have been measured as 50 feet long, 24 feet high, and 16 feet uh, thick. And again, as someone has said, you haven't seen a building until you have seen the temple in Jerusalem. So this was some building. And so it's no surprise that one of the disciples would draw attention to its magnificence. Again, in Mark 13, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. What is a surprise is the timing of the observation. You know, so you know how some people just say things and you're like, have you been following along the conversation? That's totally out of left field. It seems this one is just out of left field. This guy, Jesus said, just make this heavy statement, weeping over Jerusalem. And this guy, hey, some building, huh? What? What's the matter with you? You know, or whatever. Now, so I don't know what's going on in the minds of this guy. I wonder if in his mind he's thinking, you know what, Lord, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they don't get it. But this building, this place sure is something, a place of worship, isn't it? A place of magnificent, a beautiful place for the Jewish people to call home. I don't know what is exactly going through his mind. Sometimes people just say things because they're nervous. And so maybe just threw something out there to cover up his nerves. But he throws out there about the glory of this building. And the Lord addresses him in verse 2. He says, you see all these, do you not? All these stones, do you see them? He said, I tell you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will, be, will not be thrown down. Again, some of these stones were the sizes of school buses. And Jesus prophesies not one stone will be left here among another. You know, in your mind, try to picture the most magnificent, strongest structure that you can think of in our existence today that you can just kind of take a picture of in your mind and bring it up into the center of your thinking and then think of that as being completely destroyed because that's what Jesus says. Not one stone would be left upon another. And that prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled less than 40 years after this. 70 AD, the Romans for a period of about two years had besieged the city of Jerusalem. The Jews had kind of had enough. You know what, let's just take our stand and whatever happens, happens against the Romans. And so they um, basically, Jerusalem was one of the last places they went to. What's that big hill we go to in the Dead Sea area? Come on, the mountain we climb. Masada. Masada is like their Alamo or whatever. But just before Masada, they have this Jerusalem and they go inside the walled cities there and they're just going to kind of hold out for the Romans to leave. And the Romans said, well, we can wait out here too. And so they starved the people there. It became a very ugly time. You can do some reading and it's some history on it. But eventually they broke through, that they being the Romans, they broke through and they began to burn the city. And the city of Jerusalem was burned, including the temple. Now, remember the temple is overlaid with gold. And so all that gold would begin to melt and it would kind of make its way between the stones. And so the people wanted, the, they, the Roman government, they wanted that gold. And so they began to systematically take the temple apart so they could get all of that gold that had dripped through all of those little crevices there. And the temple was completely uh, destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another. 40 years after, 38 years or so after, Jesus had prophesied that about the city of Jerusalem. 
So it's a tough beginning to this passage. Now it continues. It says in verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Sorry. So verse 3, we'll notice there, it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. So we, we conclude with, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Lord, what a great building in Jerusalem there. Now we're over here at the Mount of Olives. Uh, the Mount of Olives sits adjacent to the temple area. It's probably a three or four minute walk to go from the temple area down the Kidron Valley and then up the hill. The, the real amount of time takes going up the hill. It's that close to one another. Mount, the Mount of Olives sits and overlooks Uh, the temple area. And so Jesus and his disciples, they make their way out of Jerusalem. They're probably heading back toward Bethany, where they've been staying with their friends, and they stop there at the Mount of Olives. And you can tell what is on their minds, because as soon as they get there, they pose this question to the Lord. It seems that what they're thinking about is the end of the world. Because notice their question in verse 3, when will be the sign of your coming? When will be the end of of the age? Now, Jesus was talking about the temple being destroyed, and for, in some way, they made the connection that the destruction of the temple is equated to the end of the world. And it's probably because the only thing that could destroy that temple or is the end of the world or, or something. Somehow they're making this sort of a connection there where they're connecting verses 1 and 2 with this question that they're going to ask him. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about the end of the world in verses 1 and 2. But since you asked, I'll tell you about the end of the world, sure. And Jesus goes on a two-chapter teaching, on the spot there, two-chapter teaching uh, on the end of the world. And we, since it was on the Mount of Olives, we call it the Olivet Discourse. And so there, sitting atop the, the Mount of Olives for two chapters, he's going to go in and he's going to begin speaking to them about the end of the world. You know, it's interesting, Jesus began his public teaching ministry with a grand sermon on a mount. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. And now he's going to kind of bring to close his teaching ministry with a grand sermon on another mount, this time the Mount of Olives. And he's going to begin to dig into the last days. Now, the study of the last days or the study of the last times or end times, that's a phrase that is called eschatology. It's a term which essentially means study of the last things. And if you're into the study of the last things, then you're probably familiar with Matthew chapter 24. You're probably familiar with the the book of 1 Thessalonians or the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel or portions of the book of Ezekiel. The Bible scattered throughout it speaks to last day's events, but there are some books of the Bible that focus on it a little more so, or portions of books that focus on it a little more so than others. The Bible speaks a lot about end time prophecy. And so today, and the next two or three weeks, we're going to dig into Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and speak about the events of the last days. Now, technically, we have been in the last days for the last 2,000 years, technically. 
And the reason I say that is on the day of Pentecost, when Peter got up to speak and God began to do a work amongst the people, people were like, what is going on here? And Peter said this, chapter 2 of Acts, he said, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days, see the phrase there, it shall come to be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and I spelled it wrong there, forgive me, and your old men shall dream dreams. So technically, we have been in the last days from the period of the day of Pentecost and the church era. But I also understand when speaking and people reference the last days, they're really talking about the events that we see or we hear about in the book of Revelation. They're thinking of terms like Armageddon, and they're thinking of the number 666 and the apocalypse and the Antichrist and so on. So technically, the last days refers to all the, this era that we have been in. And the days are short. And part of the reason why I think, even though it's been 2,000 years of a church era, part of the reason why I think it can be referred to as the last days is because the days are imminent. Christ can return at any moment for his church. And so whether it was 1,900 years ago, he could have come back at any moment during that time, and people needed to live expectantly. Even so do we, because the Lord can return at any time for his church. Now, the disciples that say, when's the world going to end? They're thinking about the Antichrist. They may not know this, but they're thinking about the Antichrist, the apocalypse, uh, and, and all those other terms, Armageddon, and so on. And so Jesus begins to give them and list for them a number of signs of the last days, those events that will come at the end of this particular age. He starts in verse 4. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus begins to give them a bunch of signs that will accompany the last days. And that could either mean leading up to the last days or actually being a part of the last days. And he begins to address this. The first sign he points to is the emergence, as it says in verse 4, of many false messiahs, false Christ, false saviors, and he says, many will rise up that will lead many astray. And sadly, throughout the history of the church, there have been those that have risen up claiming to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. As far back as the first century, there was a fellow by the name, a few fellows, Dositios the Samaritan. Remember him? I don't either. I think, yeah. Also a guy named Simon Magus. In the 1700s, here in the United States, there was a woman named Anne Lee who was involved with the Shaker movement. In the 1800s, there was Bernard Mueller, John Nichols Thorne, Arnold Potter, not Palmer, Arnold Potter, and a fellow by the name of Hong Shi Kwan, all of whom claimed to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the 1900s, there was Sun Myung Moon, Isu Matayoshi, David Koresh, you may remember that name, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, I'm the Messiah, come in these last days so throughout the history and there's plenty more you can just go online and type in who thinks they're Jesus or whatever and lots of names and if I see any of your pictures on there we're going to have a little talk or whatever and Jesus says one sign of the last days will be the prevalence of spiritual deception and he warns his disciples to take heed lest they be drawn away by that deception 
And just as he spoke these words 2,000 years ago to a group of disciples in front of him, they're just as true to you and I these days as well, perhaps more so for you and I as these days are drawing to a close. Jesus says, see to it that no one leads you astray. The King James Version there says, take heed that no one leads you astray. It's a word which in the Greek means to discern, consider, direct the mind toward, and weigh carefully. Take heed, weigh carefully. Now, we have to ask yourself, well, weigh carefully against what? You know, you think of those old scales, you put one on one side, does it balance out, is it even? Or does one side kind of pull down the other? So what do we weigh it against? Well, we weigh it against the word of God. Does this teaching that this fancy fella over here or this lady seems to be presenting, does that line up with the word of God? Does this experience that they're trying to introduce, does that line up, does it measure up with the word of God? Does this person line up with the word of God or does it contradict the scripture? We ask ourselves things like this. Hey, can I find examples of this new thing that is being introduced to the church? Can I find examples of that in the scripture? Or is this some new revelation? And you hear that a lot from those that will get up on the stage and begin to tell people about a new work that God is doing for such a time as this. There are some that will say, you know what, I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to take you off the path a little bit. We're going to take you off the path a little bit to a new work that God is doing. Don't follow them because they lead people astray. Weigh it carefully. Does it measure up to the testimony of God's words? Ask yourself this. Is this the heart and tone of the Scripture? Or is it altogether different from the Scripture? A good indicator for your answer. Jesus tells us, a mark of the last days will be a rise in spiritual deception. So be on your guard. Take heed. Weigh carefully. Jesus points to a second sign of the end of the age. Look at verse 6. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Jesus makes clear that in the last days there will be instability in the world, both geopolitically, wars and rumors of wars, as well as geologically. And so he points out that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. He says there will be famines and there will be earthquakes. In the parallel passage here in the book of Luke, he speaks of pestilences and great signs from the heavens. These, this instability that will come to the earth, geopolitically as well as geologically. Now, whether this means that these things will substantially increase in the last days, which is sort of the view that I hold, or that because of the spread of mass communication, we'll just be more aware of these things happening than we would have ever been able to know before. The point is this, that the last days will be marked by a period of instability in so many different ways. Notice Jesus adds this, though. He says in verse 8, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So all this stuff is going to be happening, but these are not the end. This is not the end. These are but the beginning of the end. These are the signs, like a a mother about to give birth, these are the signs that will mark the big day that is fast approaching. And just like labor, we can expect that these things will become more frequent and more intense as they progress to completion. 
And you know, as I read that, as I think about that, I can't help but take notice of the days in which we live. Now, I'm not going to necessarily say that we are in the midst of the last days and that the rapture is going to happen tomorrow. Again, it could. It could. But it's interesting to me that we look and we, we see what is going on in our society. It seems like every night we turn on the news and we hear about a war that is either presently happening or rumored to be about to happen. It seems like each month there's another major earthquake or another humanitarian crisis taking place around the world. And again, that could just simply be because we're 24-7 news cycles and we got uh, scores of uh, TV stations or whatever and the internet and all this stuff. And so it could simply be we have more access to this material or we have better equipment that can detect the tremors and so on. It could be any of those things or it could be the beginning of the birth pains which will increase in intensity and frequency. And thus the increase in intensity and frequency should clue us that something is about to happen. Now certainly, each one of these things in those opening seven or eight verses have been observed throughout the millennium, even as they're being observed today. We've seen the rise and fall of false messiahs. We've seen the rise of false teachers whose teachers uh, and their teachings have uh, and are leading people astray. We've heard of wars and rumors of wars and have seen the outbreak of pestilences and so on around the world. But again, those things do not necessarily speak of the last days that we commonly think of when we say or hear those terms, the last days. Again, as Jesus said, they're just the beginning of the birth pains. So just because we see all those things happening doesn't mean we're in that sev final seven-year period of time, which if you're not familiar with, I'll talk about in a moment here. We're building toward it. We're moving toward it. These are the beginning of the birth pains. But at some point in Jesus' teaching, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, at some point Jesus transitions from the events leading up to those last days to actually being in those last days. And so I want to draw your attention to verse 15 for a moment. We'll, we'll go back and cover the verses that we're skimming over. But look at verse 15. It says, When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so Jesus makes reference to something called the abomination of desolation. We learn from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, 27, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, what we learn is that the abomination of desolation takes place at the halfway mark of the tribulation, with a capital T. Now, if you're not familiar, when I talk about the tribulation with a capital T, I'm talking about a seven-year period of time at the end of this age here on the earth, prior to Christ coming back in his second coming, his grand second coming. You also need to know that there is a difference between the return of Christ and the rapture of the church. There's a difference between those two. And so a lot of times we say, oh, I just can't wait for Jesus to come back. We're probably saying, I can't wait for the rapture. But we might use the term, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. Jesus returns at the end of that seven-year period of time. You've heard of words like the word Armageddon and so on that you read about in the later chapters of the book of Revelation. I think chapter 18 or 19 or so you read there. All right, so just kind of to throw that out there. In the middle of that seven-year period of time is this event that is spoken of in Daniel 9.27 and that Jesus referenced here in Matthew chapter 24 is the abomination of desolation. 
Some of your versions might say the, the abomination which causes desolation. Now, going, let me read 927 to you of Daniel. It says, Now he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consumption and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now the he in the passage is the man that is referred to and known as the Antichrist. The covenant that he confirms with many, that will be a world peace agreement that it is believed will finally bring about peace and stability for the entire world, particularly involving the nation of Israel. You know, it's interesting that every president from at least Jimmy Carter and probably Nixon and Ford before him, but every U.S. president from that time period, one of the key things is, okay, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to make the economy the best it's ever been. Great. And we're going to stay out of war. Wonderful. And what are you going to do about Israel? Well, we're going to have a peace accord. So we're going to bring all the sides, you know, to Camp David or wherever, and we're going to come up with a peace accord. Everyone is trying to solve the problem of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And this little tiny nation the size of New Jersey that is over there in the midst of a, a people that is completely different than it. So it's a democratic nation with a capitalist economy and an 85% Jewish population in the midst of a pretty much autocratic Muslim world. And everyone's attention is on this little tiny nation there, trying to solve the problem of, the, uh, of Israel over there. And it, the Antichrist, it seems, it doesn't actually, well, it does say it's going to make an agreement with Israel. It doesn't actually say it's going to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict, but it seems that's what's happening. The Antichrist will sign this, confirm this covenant with many, and again, notice in 927, for one week. Now, that term week we've looked at in our other studies here in the Bible. That term week is the way we use the word decade. And so if somebody said, well, it's been a decade, or what a crazy decade, you know they're talking about a 10-year period of time. And in Jewish, uh, it's a Jewish idiom, the word week can either refer to seven days or it could refer to seven years. And the context of things kind of helps you understand, are we talking about the days one or the years one? We're talking about a period here of seven years. This, in Daniel, we read of a seven-year peace agreement. A seven-year peace agreement that the world at that time is going to be a peace agreement which is going to bring heaven to earth. And the reality, what happens on earth, it'll be hell on earth. A horrible period of time, which the Bible refers to as the tribulation, capital T, the tribulation period. Now, I understand. Here, here's kind of the hard part with eschatology, is it's not like you turn to page 50 and you just read, a, you know, just give me a couple paragraphs and, and put all the events in order for me. End times discussions in the scripture are scattered throughout the scripture. And many times they're used with language, which is a little bit like, are you sure what he's trying to say there? And then you've got to compare it with other parts of the scripture or whatever. So there's, there is some uncertainty with the study of end times. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you're a nice fellow, but I have no idea what you're talking about. That's fine. I understand. Just pick up what you can pick up. You can go back and you can dig into these things. I will also tell you this. There are good Christians that take differing views and understanding of last time events. My understanding of it, where I come from, is from a pre-trib uh, view. And what I mean by that is that the rapture will take place prior to the tribulation beginning. 
But there, there are guys here, gals here, I'm sure, too, but guys that I've known over the years that take a different understanding of this. And so there's a variety of different views. These are good people that are coming to the Scripture uh, and trying to figure these out. That being said, at some point, Jesus is crossing over from events leading up to the last days to events in the last days. And we know that because of verse 15. We know that the abomination of desolation calls, uh, uh, occurs in the middle of the tribulation period. So when Jesus says in verse 15 of Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, etc., and he goes on from there. So we know that takes place in the midst of the week of the tribulation. Daniel chapter 9 says that. We also know what the abomination of desolation will be. The scripture tells us the abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist breaks the covenant that he established with the nation of Israel, a seven-year peace agreement. He breaks that agreement and goes and actually defiles the temple of the Jewish people, which tells us there will be a temple for the Jewish people. And we're not just going to build it any old place, you know, a nice place in, in Israel somewhere. The temple has to be built in the place that David bought, uh, purchased the parcel of land for the temple. So it will be built in the exact pl same place that it was before. If you know anything about the city of Jerusalem now, the Temple Mount area is under the control of the Muslim people. Jordan actually controls it, even though it's in the nation of Israel. And if you know anything about it, the, I think it's the second or third most holiest site of the Muslim people is on the Temple Mount, the, the particular mosque that is there that you, you see the golden dome on pictures of Jerusalem. That's not the temple. That's the mosque of the, the Muslim people. It's the second holiest site. It's believed that uh, Muhammad ascended to heaven from that spot. And so they built in the 600s, they built this mosque on that particular site. Now, there are some that believe that's the place where the temple uh, resided. If that's the case, can you picture any leader being able to convince the Muslim people, what do you guys think about tearing this down so we could put a Jewish temple here? Would you be all right with that? Certainly not. And if somebody comes along that can convince the Muslim people to do that, well, then that guy is going to be a Messiah figure. This guy is the savior of the world if he could do that. Now, there are others that believe, and I lean with this opinion, but there are others that believe that the, the temple didn't actually stand in the same spot as the mosque stands today, but it was actually a little bit further north on that same Temple Mount area where right now there's a tiny little gazebo that stands over a rock, and they call that place the place of the spirit, which is interesting because if that's the place where the Holy of Holies was, that's where the Spirit came and resided. And so that place is over here, and there's plenty of room to build a temple right alongside of the mosque. Now, I'll say this. If a world leader can come along and come up with an agreement that the temple can stand alongside of the mosque and all the people, the Jewish people, the Muslim people, will be happy and content with that, well, then that's going to be a world leader that people are going to look at and say, this guy's the savior of the world. And so either way, this guy's going to come in, sign this agreement. The temple will be built, but three and a half years into that process, his true colors are going to come out, and he's going to go into that temple where the sacrifices will have resumed, and he'll go in there violently and set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. And that's the event that is called the abomination of desolation. And that's the event 
that will begin what is called the Great Tribulation. So the Tribulation is a seven-year period of time. The last three and a half years of the Tribulation is properly referred to in the Bible as the Great Tribulation. Another place the Scripture calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And it'll be a difficult, rough period of time for the Jewish people in particular. And again, quite accurately can be described as hell on earth. So again, at some point, Jesus transitions from events leading up to the events of the last days to actual events of the last days. Some think this entire conversation, going back to verse 3, is the the tribulation period, the seven-year period. Others think it it occurs in verse 9. Others think the transition, transition doesn't occur to verse 15 but we know it it occurs at some particular place. And so we're going to finish today. Your seatbelts have been buckled. We've been kind of covering a lot of material. I've been speaking a little extemporaneously. I don't know if I'm making any sense to you. I hope I am uh, here. But we'll pick up when we come back together next time in verse 9 of chapter 24. So I would encourage you to do this. I'm going to give you a homework assignment tonight. Would you please read this week, Matthew, don't look away like you're not going to do it. You write this down. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is your homework assignment. Read through it. Think about it. If you want to get a commentary and read on it, that's cool as well. Now, extra credit, just a little extra credit to to earn a little for your grade because some of you are slumping. All righty, for your grade. Read the book of Revelation. All righty. Particularly particularly chapters 6 through 19, okay? So you don't have to read the whole thing, just those 50 chapters. All righty. You may want to read the book of Daniel as well. All right, come on. What are you going to do, watch TV? (laughs) Well, we were planning on it. The Eagles are on today. It's not worth watching, right, Brittany? The Eagles. All righty. So anyway, read some of those things. Just sort of give some context because Jesus doesn't go into great depth about those events, but those other places that I mentioned do. And we'll start digging into the events of the last days, whether they begin in verse 9 or they begin in verse uh, 15. But we know they begin at some point, okay? So we'll stop there. Father, thank you for the, the confidence that even though a period of chaos will come upon this earth, Lord, that you're fully aware of all of this, you're in control of all these things, that they will accomplish your purposes and that you're sovereign and we don't have to kind of uh, be scared or, or afraid or um, worrisome of what is ahead of us. But, Lord, that you have all of these things. And certainly, Lord, our eyes are, are fixed on heaven when you will call us out of this place. But, Lord, uh, until that time, as your word says, we are to occupy until you come for us. And so, Lord, we want to be uh, your people, busy about your work advancing your kingdom, Lord, ultimately for your glory. And so we ask, Lord God, do a stirring within our hearts about your soon return. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com.
www.thechurchapp.com or download the Church app to your phone.